You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. To find more resources and learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. John chapter 2, we're continuing our second week in our little mini-series on signs, the signs of Christ in John. Uh, And this week, he's going to the temple. He's going to the temple. John chapter 2, verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, it gets dramatic quickly, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and he overturned their tables. And those who sold, and he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Well, this text, I think, is is a really exciting one to me. you know, we're coming up on Halloween, and part of the word hallows means holy, uh, and, and it begs the question, do we believe in hallowed ground? Do you believe in hallowed ground, holy space, right? Is this ground right here any more holy than the ground over there where CVS or Domino's or anything else is? I personally don't. Um, in our current time in Christ, I don't think this is holy ground because we meet here. But maybe you do. That's fine. Uh, people think of graves sometimes as, as hallowed, or they think of uh, other churches maybe would understand what they're doing to be on a holy piece of ground. And in this text, Jesus, if there is somewhere that's holy, special space that's set apart, uh, it's the temple. It is the temple, right? If, if there's holy ground, it's definitely the temple in Jerusalem, right? All the major world religions seem to want to fight over it, even today. Uh, And Jesus is there on this really important piece of ground, this extremely hallowed space, this extremely holy place. And he is there, and he doesn't like sit down and pray like you would expect him to. Instead, we have a challenge right off the bat, right? He makes a whip, and he starts swinging it around. He doesn't just like hold it and use it as an illustration. He he hits people with it. It's violent. It's, It's loud, right? Uh, it, it challenges, if you have in your brain the picture of Jesus, that kind of like girly one sometimes they put up in churches with the long hair and he's like super white and he's got like a little blush going on. Like it really challenges that picture of Jesus because it's hard to imagine that guy swinging, like hitting people with a whip. And it's hard to, it's hard to imagine any Jesus hitting. So what is going on here? Why is he so upset? Who is this person that we're worshiping? Uh, And I I really love this text because it, I think, shows us some important things about holy space, about who Jesus is. Um, And and to get this, it's kind of hard for us to get it today. We have to understand a bit of what the temple meant. What was the temple? That's where this takes place. That's why he's doing this because he's upset about their misusing. They've misunderstood temple. Well, well, the temple in the Old Testament, we're going to see this over and over again. It's the place where heaven meets earth. It's the place where the two touch, where God comes down to interact with man. And the thing that they were supposed to do there, the thing that they were supposed to do there, and nowhere else, actually, was to offer sacrifices. 
and not just like small things, but like literal animals that they would kill and use their blood. They would offer sacrifices at this place where heaven and earth meet. That's what made the temple holy ground. And in this passage, we're going to see that he, Christ shows us his zeal for the temple's purity. He shows us the importance of his body as the true temple. And he points us to his resurrection. He shows us the zeal uh, for the temple's purity. He shows us the importance of his body as the true temple and he points us to his body's resurrection. So let's, let's dive in. Verse 13, the Passover of the Jews is at hand. This is their big festival. They all, they're supposed to go up to Jerusalem at this point, so he's doing what he's supposed to, just like you know, Islamic people go to Mecca. Jesus goes to Jerusalem. He's doing what he's supposed to do. And in the temple, verse 14, he finds people selling oxen, sheep, pigeons, money changers. Why would they be there? Well, when you go up to Jerusalem for the Passover, you take this long trip, maybe from, if you're from Galilee, it's a long walk up there, and they get there, and they're supposed to have brought with them a sacrifice, not a tithe on their app that they're supposed to be giving, but they're supposed to have brought a literal animal with them. And, and because it's physically very difficult to travel hundreds of miles by foot, on foot with an animal, it made total sense, and from the time of David, people had gone to Jerusalem and then purchased animals. Totally fine. Totally fine. Not an issue. What they're doing this time, though, is they've actually taken part of the temple, the part where the Gentiles hang out, the part where anyone can come in and worship, and that's as far as some people could get. They've taken that part of the temple, and they've turned that into the place where they can get their sacrifices to offer up. And Jesus is really, really upset about this. Because what they're doing is they're trying, when they offer sacrifices, right? We could do this because we're commanded to. That would be good. We could do sacrifices because we feel sad. We feel penitent, right? We want to confess and say, God, let this animal stand in my place. Let it cover my sin, right? Like our call to confession we did. Or we maybe silently say to the Lord, and maybe you feel that brokenness every week. I need you, God. I have failed, and, and maybe, and in the Old Testament, the, the res- proper response to that feeling was to offer sacrifices. But they could also maybe do sacrifices in not so good of a way. Um, saying like, well, what's the easiest possible way to get God off my case? And maybe they just wanted to offer sacrifices with the thing that costs me the least, right? How can I skimp on this the most? I'm reminded of myself in high school. Uh, one of my teachers had said that, like, hey, if you, if you turn in your homework just before the final exam, I will pass you. So, of course, naturally, I tried to just only do my homework the last night before the final exam, easy as possible. What's the easiest possible way I can get out of this without doing any real work? And, and sometimes in sacrifice, this, is, this becomes uh, people's tendency. They just ask, How can we do, what can we do that's the easiest possible way? Right? They want same-day shipping on their sacrifice. They want one-click ordering. They want to go to the temple. I don't want to have to bring a lamb with me for hundreds of miles. I don't even want to buy it outside of the temple. I want to buy it in here right now and just check that box is done. Right? We just moved here from the southeast where cultural Christianity is in full swing, let me tell you. And roll tide. And uh, one of the things that is noticeably different about this church than kind of what I'm used to having grown up in the Southeast is that people in the Southeast go to church, you know, maybe, maybe this is you too, I don't know, but people in the Southeast go to church like they have a 401k. Like it's just a thing you need to do. You're, you're supposed to check that box off so that culturally you fit in, so that you're okay. 
And, and I'm here to tell you this morning, if that's why you're here, you're just checking the box off. The easiest, this was the church with the least commitment out of all the other ones, and you know you need to be in church. That's not the point. That is not why we're here. And Christ is really upset because people have gone all the way up to the temple just to get the easiest possible experience. They've completely cheapened this whole idea of sacrifice down to just a trade with God. And he's livid. He's livid. They've missed out on the the meaning of this, right? Sacrifice gets to be a wonderful, beautiful experience for us. When we see our brokenness before a holy God, and we say, I need something, someone, please, to stand in my place. And and this great picture, right, of of a lamb without blemish, an animal, Shed in my place. It's amazing. That's, that's ultimately what Christ points us to, is that he steps in our place. But instead, they've exchanged that for just one-click ordering, the easiest possible thing to, to skimp and get out of the problem. And so he's really, really angry, and righteously so, right? We could think about trying to get out of sacrifice with too much ease. We could also think about putting too much weight on this. Uh, if you've heard much about Martin Luther, I always want to dress up for him for Halloween. Shave the middle of my head. It would be awesome. Gracie doesn't like it for some reason. But if you've, Martin Luther, when he was younger, before he started the whole Reformation thing, uh, very famously would go to confession, and he would spend like six, seven, eight hours a day in the confessional. His confessor was probably really frustrated, like, please let me get out of here. But he would spend hours and hours and hours every day talking through all, and it's like, how do you, how did you have eight hours of sin between the last time you were here yesterday? Like, every day he was just eaten up, destroyed by the sin, thinking, I just need to confess more. I have even more that, that's weighing me down. Sometimes when we think about sacrifice, we, we overemphasize it, and we can think that I just need to do this many more things in order to save myself. And Christ rejects that as well right? He doesn't want them to make this too easy, and he also doesn't want them to overemphasize the fact that they can knock off things off a list and then feel fine before God, right? We come up with our own sort of lists sometimes of things, if I can do enough spiritual activity, then God will forgive me. And and sometimes we think, maybe we need to make it purposely hard on ourselves. I don't think that's the, don't hear that either. That's not the right message either. We still, you know, one application for this passage is like maybe we shouldn't accept tithes or something or like we shouldn't have any commerce. I don't think he's saying like make it purposefully difficult on yourselves. Instead, he's saying something quite different. He's saying we're freed from having to focus on sacrifice. We're freed from having to focus on it. So verse 18, he's coming here. He's had his whip. He's been swinging around. People have lost their trades, and they've been kicked out of the temple. And at this point, the the Jewish leadership comes in, right? If you brought a whip into Holy Cross and started swinging it around, someone in charge, not me probably, but Pete, somebody hopefully would stop you and would say, like, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? So the Jewish leadership show up, and they say, like, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Why are you doing this? Where's your ID? Like, he's expecting to, like, pull out, like, his FBI badge or something to show, like, oh, don't worry, I'm Jesus. Um, Instead, he doesn't do that. No, verse 19, he answers in classic Gospel of John, like, what on earth are you talking about? He says, we'll destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up. Like, that's a weird thing to say, right? If someone comes into Holy Cross, and they start moving all the things around, and, like, 
we're like, okay, why are you doing that? Who are you? And they're like, well, trust me, tear the building down. And then I will bring it back. That's a weird thing to say, right? Because he's not talking about the actual temple. But they don't know that. And he just leaves it there. I love that. Verse 20, they say, it's, dude, it's taken us 46 years to build this thing. And you're going to build it back in three days? Like, come on. Right? It's a massive complex. If you've got a big study Bible, there's probably a drawing in there, a picture of this massive thing. And like the Jewish temple being torn down and rebuilt is a common, at this point, common thing. They're on the third or fourth one. Like they've, they've had it destroyed, and then they rebuild it, and it's kind of lame, and they all cry. And then that one gets destroyed, and then Herod comes back, and Herod wants to be Jewish, but he's not really Jewish. And he pretends to build this big temple, and it takes them forever. And they're like, dude, you're going to tear down this thing like the size of that Amazon facility over there and build it back in three days? Like, what, are, what on earth? Right? And, and uh, he was speaking about himself. Verse 21, John tells us that. He gives us an interpretation. He says, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. What, what does this mean, right? So they want us, he, he gives us this crazy sign. He's whipping people out of the temple left and right. They want to see that he's legit. They want to see his ID. And he gives them this challenge. And they, they don't call his bluff. They don't tear the building down. Um, instead, he shows us that he is the true temple. Jesus is the true temple. The true temple was his body. Right? If we think about a temple as the meeting place of God and man, where heaven meets earth, then Christ is the ultimate temple. He's both fully God and he's fully man. He is the place where heaven and earth come together in one person. Right? Jesus is the true temple. What's cool about this is he's also, what's the other thing that happens at temples? They offer up sacrifices. There's a priest, right, who goes and offers a sacrifice. They get to once a year enter the Holy of Holy after all the sacrifices and make petition for the people of God uh, on their behalf. Well, Christ is also the ultimate priest, and he's the ultimate sacrifice, right? He's the perfect temple. He's the perfect priest. He's the perfect sacrifice. Uh, He is where heaven meets earth. He is the only one who's able to perfectly plead on our behalf, which he's doing right now, actually, for us. And he's the perfect sacrifice without blemish, shed in our place. Uh, And he really, really cares about the purity of his church. He's shed in our place, right? Sometimes we think about the temple, and this is maybe harder even for us to get because we don't believe in hallowed ground that often. But, you know, back then it was a, a bigger idea. Sometimes today, if, again, I mentioned earlier, if you're Islamic, people like make trips to Mecca, you know, like that's, that's a common thing at the time. Uh, it, when they were writing, they thought Ephesus had the center, the entrance down to the underworld. Like if you wanted to go to hell, you just went to Hades or you went to F- Ephesus and found a, a hole in the ground and started digging. Uh, they believed that there were real places where like things didn't line up. Maybe you still believe that. I don't know. Um, but uh, if, if you watch Stranger Things, right, that's where the upside down meets earth, Hawkins, Indiana, the special place. Uh, well, Jesus is this true place where there is an overlap between worlds. There's an overlap between heaven and earth. Both dwell in him. He's fully God. He's fully man. He's this true temple. 
And if you're listening to this, maybe you're, maybe also if you're really into weightlifting, I don't know, you might be thinking, well, my body is actually the true temple, Garrett. Like, I've read that. I've got that verse on the wall in the gym. I sit there and look at the mirror. Like, my body is the true temple. Uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 6 talks about, right, our body is a temple. And he says, you know, do you not know your body uh, is a temple? But he doesn't just say your body is a temple. He says your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit that dwells in you. This is an important distinction. We think about what is the temple today? Where, where does God dwell today on earth? Uh, I don't think it's a building. It's the church. It's his people because God's Holy Spirit dwells in us. Hebrews also tells us this, right? We're a holy priesthood. All of us now have been made priests uh, to God. Uh, he says our body's a temple because the Holy Spirit dwells in us. Uh, so, so we get just, just some important ideas here for us that we, as we understand that we now are the dwelling place in a little bit of a way uh, of God on earth. His Holy Spirit is dwelling within, within you. What does that mean? Well, it means that our purity actually does matter quite a lot, right? They've exchanged temple purity for convenience. And we need to be wary of doing the same in our own lives, if God's spirit dwells in us, we need to make sure that like our purity matters as well. And I'm not just talking about like the 90s like purity culture Christian teen thing, but like our purity matters. How how do we apply that, right? Sometimes we fill our lives with all kinds of things that are far from God. Sometimes we fill our lives with maybe even spiritual things, but they detract from Christ. If our attempts at sacrifice or service, they point us away from Christ and his ultimate sacrifice and purity, then they're misguided. We can do all kinds of spiritual exercises and backflips and hard work. And yet, if they point us away from the personal work of Jesus, then they are completely misguided. Christ wants to cleanse the temple. He's really adamant about it. And yet, if we're working to do that and we're missing Jesus then we've completely missed the point. We're no better than the folks in this passage who have, in trying to make themselves right with God, just filled up the temple with commerce and trade uh, instead of genuine sacrifice. If our attempt, uh, service or sacrifice, doesn't point us to Jesus, then it's, it's off base. And so he wants to cleanse our lives. He wants to purify us. Uh, he wants to make us his perfect bride, his perfect church, his holy place. But sometimes that is hard to achieve. Verse 22, verse 22. I love, John, one of the best things about John is that almost nobody, or almost any of the Gospels, no one gets who Jesus is. There's a lot of grace for us here as we struggle to realize uh, who Jesus is, as we struggle to comprehend the truths he's given us in Scripture. Verse 22 shows us yet another example of this. Uh, it says, When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, that his body was a temple, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. If you're like me, you've read this story, and we're like, okay, we're in the signs series, Pete. Why did you assign this text? Why, where's the sign? Like, he, did he do anything particularly miraculous here? Like, he made some whips. But, like, other than that, what's miraculous about this text? Well, the, the miracle, the sign, the thing that this is pointing us to to cause us belief is that Jesus comes back from the dead again after three days, right? That wonderful Easter truth that we can celebrate all year long. That this man who was also, he's fully God, but he's also fully flesh like you and me, 
right? He had acne probably growing up. He had to go to the bathroom. He was a real dude. And he really died. And he really came back from the dead again after three days. He wasn't just asleep. He didn't partially die. He really died. No heartbeat, dead on the table. And he came back to life after three days in a tomb. It's wonderful news. That's the sign. That's what this is pointing us to. Verse 22, his disciples didn't get this for a couple of years. This is the first year of his ministry. And they're not going to get this till three years later after he comes back from the dead. So it's a wonderful, wonderful reminder that we might not get many of the most important truths of God's word for us now. Right? Think about Abraham and Sarah. They, they get this wonderful message from God, or maybe challenging message from God. Go, leave your home, leave your life, right? But don't worry, Abraham, I'm going to give you what in the ancient world give, is like the most important thing, children. I'm going to give you so many children, you're going to be like the granddaddy of all granddaddies. And then they go, and they're like, oh man, we're having some fertility problems. They go, and they, they don't have any babies. And a year goes by, and two years goes by, and 25 years goes by. And now they're like 100 years old, and they're ancient, and they don't see where God's working in their lives, right? And if you follow the Old Testament, Genesis, not a kid's book, they mess up a lot in really dramatic ways. And yet Christ uh, is working. God is working. In this passage, the disciples had to have seen this and been like, okay, he whipped people out of there, but like, where's the magic? Where's the sign? Where's the miracle? Well, it's because we have to wait to see God's full working. Even now, right? Even now, especially now, we are waiting for Christ to return. We're waiting. We have his word. We have his truth. But it's what we call the already not yet. He's already died. He's not yet returned. He's already justified us. He has not yet sanctified us. Uh, And as we wait in this tension, uh, we have to have the hard experience of being like those Pharisees in the temple. We see this man, Jesus, in our lives. And he is working to purify us. And yet we might stop him at the door and say, where's your ID? We might stop him at the entrance to our hearts and say, like, on what authority are you allowed to change what I care about? Right? If we're going to be his dwelling place now, the Holy Spirit's dwelling place, there's a challenge there. Christ is going to come into our lives and he promises to purify us. And that hurts. That can hurt a lot. Uh, this you know, we have to ask, what has the authority, what has the power to reshape my life? What, who, what could you say to me that would change the very nature of what I believe? How I identify myself? Who I think I am? What authority has that power in your life? Because Jesus is coming in to change the way you live. If he wanted you to say exactly the same, that would be a whole lot easier But instead, he has this zeal, this passion to purify uh, his temple. And when he comes to change your life, he's going to change your habits. He's going to change your practices. This is not just a Sunday morning group and like the rest of the week we do something different. He's going to change the way you schedule your week. He's going to change the way you see yourself. He's going to change the way you understand your relationships. And he's going to change actually your very heart. Your very desires are changed. He says, I'm going to remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. He promises to change us. And on whose authority? Right? We only believe in his authority if we believe in his resurrection. In this passage, they're asking, like, how do, you, how do we know you're legit? And he points them to something that's not going to happen for three years later. 
that we have a similar challenge. We might ask, how do we know this is true? How do we know that Jesus really is who he says he is? And we have to look back at something that happened almost 2,000 years ago. But if we do believe, if we are willing to believe that he came back after three days in the grave, that he can rebuild this temple, then he promises this wonderful news for us, church. He promises to purify our lives. Something that we, that I, cannot do myself. That no matter how many sacrifices I offer, no matter how good of a person I am, no matter how many sins I cut off out of my life, I'm never going to be able to make myself right with God on my own. And yet he promises to do that for me. But the the challenge is that he's got to come into my life and he's got to kick out what's got a hold in there in the first place, right? That passage in 1 Corinthians 6 where he tells us that our temple's a body, he also tells us that we're not our own. We're bought with a price. We're God's. Uh, We we, we don't belong to ourselves anymore. And that's that's a unique challenge for us. He has the authority and the power and the desire to cleanse your life, but it has to be uh, his. We have to give it over to him. So as we look at this passage, this story of him coming into the temple, of him cleansing it, removing these money changers and all this stuff, uh, and then being challenged and asked, who do you, why, why do you have the authority to do this? And him responding with, well, I'm going to come back from the dead after three days. Uh, what, do we, what do we take away from this? Hopefully it tells us that we don't have to cheat at sacrifice. We don't need to. And it's not good if we tried, right? Uh, we don't uh, need to try same-day delivery on sacrifice because Christ has already done that for us. It tells us that the ultimate meeting place of God and man is in the person of Jesus. That's a really important thing. Uh, it's not actually me. I'm just a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. It's not actually this building. Uh, it's not actually any building, I don't think. It's the person of Jesus, It tells us that anything we might try to do that takes away from that person of Christ, that's misguided. We don't need to put our efforts there. Uh, It tells us that he has the power and the desire and the authority to reshape and to cleanse our lives. That even if we've seen him work and it's been years and we haven't quite understood it yet, he is still hoping to reshape our lives. Think about his disciples. They saw him do this and then it took three years Uh, before they understood what it meant. Uh, Maybe you've heard his word before you've known the story. Nothing I've said today is new to you. And yet, years have gone by, but you're maybe excited to have him cleanse your life in a new way today. Maybe you're here every week, and and I'm hoping, too, on my uh, personal level, to have my life cleansed today, right? All of us hopefully are. That's why we come to worship, one of the reasons. Uh, This passage tells us that, that Christ is ready and he's willing to do that. He uh, he gave himself as the ultimate sacrifice so that we wouldn't have to. Uh, He died in my place for my sins, and he gave me his righteousness. It doesn't make any sense, and yet that is the truth of the gospel. That is the real sign in this story, and and I think it asks us, uh, just will we let him cleanse our lives? Do we think we're our own temple, we're our own God, our own authority, uh, or will we surrender to him? and give him our life and let him cleanse us. Thanks for listening to this audio from Holy Cross Church. Visit us at holycrosstucson.com to find more resources and connect with us.